this morning. Um, we're going to be going here, there, and everywhere, so try and keep up this morning. Matthew chapter 7, and uh, we'll get started. So as we begin this morning, I want you to use your imaginations. And you might say, Andy, I don't have a very good imagination, but try with me this morning. Try and picture yourself in first century Israel. You're living a quite normal life. You've got a job. You've got some kids, maybe. Maybe you go to synagogue on Sunday, Saturday. You're a normal person living a normal life. But there have been rumors spreading all around Israel. Rumors about this man. The people are talking. The gossips are gossiping. And there's an excitement around this new rabbi, this new teacher, this man called Jesus. And you've heard this rumor that he's from a place called Nazareth, and that's kind of confusing because what good can come from Nazareth? But you've heard about his healings. You've heard about the miracles. You've heard about the deliverances. You've heard about people being raised from the dead. And you've heard about his teaching, that this man, when he teaches, is just different. There's something different about the way this man speaks about the word of God. And everyone around you, including yourself, just wants to know more about this man called Jesus. And then one day you wake up, you're having your breakfast, you look outside the window and you catch a glimpse of this man walking down the street. And he's being surrounded by people. He's crowded. He's hemmed in. You can see this man, Jesus. The multitudes have gathered and they are following him. You throw aside your breakfast, you forget your plan for the day, and you get out the door and you follow. Why? Because you're desperate to hear him. Because you're desperate to simply see him. And as this man Jesus heads up this mountainside, he begins to sit down and those closest to him gather around his disciples. You find a spot, you listen in, and this man Jesus begins to open his mouth and speak. And as he speaks, he begins to teach. And it's like nothing you've ever heard before. This man teaches with power. This man teaches with authority. This man teaches with a reality. And this man, Jesus, teaches in such a way that it's not just about head knowledge, information, but he's talking about what James was talking about, which is the transformation of the heart. This man, Jesus, is taking all these these rules and these laws and these ideas and saying it's all about the way you live. It's about your response to the kingdom of God. This man, Jesus, is teaching about a radical way of living. He's teaching about a costly way of living, a life that will demand all of you, every part of you. This man, Jesus, is speaking of holy living. And it's nothing like you've heard before. No sermon in a synagogue can even touch what Jesus is saying. And as you spend this this time with Jesus, you realize it's the end of the day. You've been with Jesus and time has just flown by and your mind is completely blown. 
There are so many ideas that he's thrown out there that you've just grasped a hold of, not really fully getting it, but recognizing the truth in what he's saying. Not only is your mind blown, but your heart is in pieces because you're recognizing this is not a life that I am living. And you think it's time to go home. But he isn't finished yet. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, whoever sits and listens, takes in and lives out, that one is like a man who's built his house on the rock. The rains descended, the floods have come, and the winds blew, and they built on that house, and it did not fall, for it's founded on the rock. But everyone who hears those sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat down on the house, and it did what? It fell down. And great was its fall. You see, that day Jesus did not just send out this teaching, he also sent out this invitation. An invitation, if you've ever received one, which I'm sure you have, a birthday party, a reception for a wedding, a job invitation, an invitation demands a response. You receive it, and then you must respond to it. And this decision that lay before the people was this, a choice. Jesus laid down all this teaching from the head to the heart to the transformed, radical, costly way of living. He said, now you must choose. And when he did this, he actually placed a responsibility, not in his hand anymore, but now in the responder, the one who's received that message, that teaching. The question is this. To everyone sat there listening to this sermon, to each of us as we read the Sermon on the Mount, as we take a hold of the teachings of Jesus, the question is this. What are you going to do? What will you do with the teaching of Jesus? What will you do with the person that is Jesus? See, the choice that Jesus laid before these men, these women, these children, and it's been laid down before us this morning is this. Jesus says, will you build your life on me? Or will you build your life on the world? Will you take the rock or will you take the sand? And it's a choice that we're still facing, not just weekly, not just daily, but moment by moment. Every morning we face this decision, do I build my day upon the rock that is Jesus Christ? Or do I lean on what the world is telling me? Do I lean on the teachings of this world or of the saviour of the world? And so we have this decision, don't we? What do we do? What do we build our lives upon? And then we have to think about the foundations themselves. And if you think about foundations, how do we actually know the strength of a foundation? It has to be tested. There's no point having a foundation unless it's actually tested. And how is a foundation tested? It's tested by storms. I'm sure many of us have faced storms in our Christian lives. Many of us have faced storms in our lives before following Jesus. But there are storms around us. There are storms brewing there are the storms which are very much public and out on display in the world around us, in the culture, in the news. But then there are those private storms, those storms in our homes, those storms in our hearts and minds that only we think we know about. 
These are the storms that are very real, even if we are unwilling to recognize that they are there. Even if we are unwilling to acknowledge these storms, they are very much around us. These storms could be spiritual. Maybe we're facing doubts and questions. Maybe we've heard some teaching which is confusing us. These storms could be relational. Maybe our marriages are breaking down. Maybe our hopes of marriages are breaking down. Friendships, family. Maybe these storms are financial, and we're just struggling to make it through the week, the month, the year. Maybe these storms are circumstantial. Maybe that thing that you never expected to happen has happened. Maybe your life has been touched by tragedy, loss, pain, grief. There are storms all around us in the public, but also very much in the private. And the question is this. Where will you land when the rug gets pulled out from underneath your feet? Where will you land? And how will you look when you do land? When the circumstances change, when the situations change, when life itself seems to be falling apart around you, who or what will be holding you up? Now, I took this passage for a run. I was running around Milton Country Park just considering this passage about building your life on, on the rock. And this, this image came to me, which has been something for me to hold on to and something that I think will encourage you. This image of a man in a storm. And this man is walking. He's on a rock. He's on firm ground. And when you're in a storm and when the winds are beating down on you, when that rain is literally horizontal in your face, you do not make yourself bigger. You do not increase your surface area. In order for you to be as safe and secure as possible, you make yourself as small as possible. In the midst of that storm, what do you do? You get down to the ground as low as you can possibly be. And it's in the midst of our storms that we are closest to the rock. If we are trusting on him as our foundation, Relying upon him as our strength, in the midst of our storms, we are forced closer to that rock. And it's in our storms that our intimacy with Christ isn't beaten, but it grows. It changes. It becomes something more precious, something more beautiful, something that we can hold on to. If I had to sum up this message this morning in a sentence, it would be this. In an ever-changing world, would you agree? ever-changing world, full of uncertainty, would you agree? We need the certainty of the rock that is Jesus Christ. In an ever-changing world full of uncertainty, we need the certainty of the rock that is Jesus Christ. If you remember one thing, take that home. Dwell on it and meditate upon it. Psalm 61, David, he cries out to God, he knows that God will hear him from wherever he is crying out from. And he says this, when my heart is overwhelmed. Who's felt like that recently? With all that's going on, all the change, all the uncertainty, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me. It's not us leading ourselves. It's God leading us to the rock that is higher than I. In the midst of all the craziness of the life around us, it's Jesus that we can stand upon. He is the stable one. He is the strong one. He himself has said this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never means never. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, this morning really is just an encouragement to us, a reminder to us of our rock, our rock who is Christ Jesus, our rock who is ever-present and ever-steadfast. And you look throughout the Bible, and there are men and women who, who lived this out and lived it out well, men and women who stood steadfastly and faithfully upon a rock. We're going to look at one man briefly, and that is the man Job. If you want to turn to Job chapter 1. Job was this, this Old Testament man spoken of by the prophet Ezekiel, called by Ezekiel a man of righteousness. Job was abundantly blessed. He had more than you could possibly ever want or imagine. We read that he was a good man. Job was a blameless man. He was an upright man. He was a man that feared God and shunned evil. Constantly on the lookout for his family. Constantly representing his family before God and seeking God's will. And in Job chapter 1, Satan enters into this narrative and is standing before God. And Satan and God, they begin this dialogue, this discussion about this man, Job. We read that he is the servant of the Lord. And Satan comes in before God and says, I've got this idea. And he presents a hypothesis to God. He says this, basically, if you remove everything from Job, you take away all the blessing, all the prosperity, all the wealth, all the riches, all of the goodness, if you strip him back completely, you will see that his righteousness, his goodness, is based only upon his circumstances and his situation. And they have this conversation, Satan and God. God says, I'm not going to put my hand upon him, but you can. And Satan is given permission by God and very strict parameters by God to come into the life of Job. And so in steps Satan, and so begin the storms in the life of Job. One by one, his wealth, his success, his prosperity, his family are taken away from him. They are removed. They're destroyed. And we come to this place when the focus is now on the man. Nothing around the man, nothing that surrounded the man, but the man himself, Job. And the question is, well, what will Job do? How will Job respond when that rug has been pulled out from underneath his feet? We just stand as we read a couple of verses together in Job chapter 1, and then we'll pray the Lord will bless his word. Job chapter 1. All of this has taken place. He's lost it all. Verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we stand here this morning, those of us who have a faith in you, 
those who recognize you as Lord and Savior, we can say that we are stood upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. God, would you strengthen each and every one of us that we would stand firm, that we would be unmovable and unshakable in the face of the storms that are around us and within us. God, open your word, I pray, and teach us by your spirit this morning about the rock that is the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do take a seat. Job was in this position where everything was taken away from him. All of the hopes and dreams that he had for all of the things that he possessed were taken away in a day. Stripped back, Job does what he can do and what he can only do, which is to fall down and to worship. The thing is this, Job knew who God was in the prosperity and blessing. And he also knew who God was in the moment when it was all taken away from him. And the God in the prosperity of the blessing is the same as the God in the suffering and the grief and the pain. The God who we can rejoice in as we are succeeding or appearing to succeed is also the God we can rejoice in when we are down on the ground with nothing else left. God is the same. He is the rock that we fall upon. And in our storms, we as believers in Jesus desperately need him. We desperately need to rely upon Jesus. And the more we know Jesus, the stronger our foundation will become. And so what we're going to do in the time that we have left this morning is we're just going to examine our rock, examine our foundations, and also consider those who do not have Christ as their foundation. So the first thing I'd like us to do is to turn to Psalm 18 and ask ourselves this question, just how sturdy is our rock? <clears throat> just how stable is the foundation that we are standing on? Because if your life depends upon it, you want a firm foundation. Amen? So Psalm 18, the context of this psalm, David, King David has been delivered from all of his enemies. He's been delivered from Saul. He's been set free. And recognize it's not by his own strength or his own successes, or his own power is by God and God alone. If we look in verse 1 of Psalm 18, it says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. I don't know if you write or annotate or make notes in your Bible, but why not circle the word my? It's not just once. It's throughout this very short passage. And it's important for us to highlight this word because what it does to us is encourage us strengthen us in the fact that God has a desire for a personal relationship with each and every one of you. He has a desire to know you and be known by you. He has a desire for you to involve him in your life. As we read the word of God, which is the rock because it is Jesus, as we read that word, we need to know that it's not simply theoretical or hypothetical. It is in itself truth 
reality. And the first thing to recognize from David as he's crying out to God in the midst of his deliverance is this, I know my God. I know him and I can cry out to him. And David knew who God was by the experiences of life that he had lived out. David, this young shepherd boy out there in the wilderness with just the sheep and the God who created the universe. He could look out and declare the heavens, declare the glory of God. He could recognize that God was his good shepherd as God protected him from the wolves, from the bears. And eventually as God protected him and gave him victory over Goliath, brought him into the place of king. David knew God by the experiences of his life. We test the strength of the foundations by living through and in the storms. You're only going to know how strong your faith is. You're only going to know how strong your relationship is with Jesus by looking at what happens when you go for a difficult season of life. Are you someone who is pushed away from God or are you someone who draws near to him? Are you someone who looks at the difficulties and questions why or are you someone like Job who simply falls down and worships? I mean, look here at how David could describe God. My strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now, how do you describe God to those whom you're sharing with? Is he these things to you? Can you from your testimony say that this is who God is to me? He is the one who sustains me, who upholds me, who strengthens me. You see, from the life that David lived, he could say that God is dependable and reliable. So as you're describing your faith in God, how do you describe God? What's your relationship like with him? As we go further on in the psalm, in verse 31, David says, For who is God except the Lord? Who could we stand on except God? And who is a rock except our God? Who else is strength can we stand upon? Who else can we rely upon but God? Verse 46, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. God is alive. He is our rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. David knew from his experiences just how sturdy his rock was. My encouragement to you is, do you know how sturdy your rock is? Because he is someone that we can rely upon, trust in, and hold on to when the storms of this life come against us. Then I was thinking about the people who see Jesus, but don't see him as he ought to be seen. Those who view Christ, and instead of building a house upon him, Decide to turn away and walk away. Turn me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Because if we don't see Jesus rightly, what happens is this. We stumble. We trip. We have a foundation that is poor. And we have a foundation that is insecure. And we see Jesus described as the rock. But we also in Scripture see that to many, Jesus is described as a stumbling stone. 
David knew God personally, intimately. We, if we are walking with Christ, know God personally and intimately, but there are many in this world who do not. If we look in verse 7, it says, Therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Same message, same idea, same Jesus. But we see that for some, they see Jesus as, as this stone that they ought to reject. That comes from Psalm 118. They see Jesus as a stumbling stone. And we know Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians, he talks about how the, Greek, uh, the Jews themselves were stumbled by the message of the cross. And the Greeks, the Gentiles, they weren't stumbled. They just thought it was foolish. And then to some, Jesus is a rock of offense. I mean, how many people are offended by Jesus today? How many people are offended by the message that we are simply bringing to them, a message of salvation? But if we consider why, why do people reject Jesus? There, there are many, many reasons, but they look at Jesus and they decide, they choose to not make him their chief cornerstone. They make a decision of themselves that they will not follow his ways. It could be because they're stuck in a religion. They're stuck in some form of idolatry where they are worshipping some other God, always constantly working harder to get to that God. Maybe they're stuck in some kind of legalism or self-righteousness. But there are many who are stuck in this idea of just worldly thinking. So focused on the here and now, so focused on themselves that they don't consider their need for a saviour. I think that links to one of the biggest reasons why many reject Jesus, and that is pride. Pride of man, right? That we think that we are okay, that we are good enough, that we don't need God, that we don't have to have a savior because we don't need saving. I'm doing okay. Thank you very much. But many people, when they see Jesus, many people are stumbled. Many people reject him. and Many people may find him offensive. But it goes back to that invitation from Jesus right at the beginning in Matthew chapter 7. There's only ever two choices. You build your house on the rock or you're building your house upon the sand. We were talking about this yesterday, myself and Becca, about how so many things in, in the kingdom of heaven are so binary. It's either one or the other. There's no other choice. There's no gray areas. You're in the kingdom or you're out of the kingdom. You're light or you're darkness. You're dead or you're alive. You're full of joy or you're miserable, hopeless or hopeful, building on the rock or building on the sand. And there are many who choose to build on the sand. If that is you here this morning, I encourage you, when a storm hits, what's going to happen? It's all going to come crumbling down. If you're building your life on Christ, on who he is, you'll be able to stand firm. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We heard this morning already, there's only one way to salvation, and is that, through, that is through the blood that Jesus spilled on Calvary, the work that was complete upon the cross. And that's why the third point is this. To you who believe, 
Jesus is precious. I just consider that. Jesus is precious. What do you do with something that you think is precious? You look after it. You nurture it. You take care of it. You find safety and security by being with that thing that is precious. You invest in the thing that is precious. So is Jesus precious to you? Can you go for a walk with just Jesus and simply be with him in his presence? You see, Jesus Christ is, there's no other way of saying this, he is the chief cornerstone. Whether you like it or not, whether you consider it's true or not, it is true, sorry, and he is the chief cornerstone. And you're either building on him or you're not. And if you consider a building project, the chief cornerstone, the capstone, the thing that's laid down first is the most important part of a solid, sound building project. And if we're making Jesus Christ our chief cornerstone, that means that everything in our lives, every area, every avenue, whether in private or public, has to be built up on him and built off of him. If it's not connected to him, get rid of it. Remove it. Only have things that are built upon Jesus. He is a necessity. He is vital to our lives. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Because Paul In Ephesians, he gives more depth to this idea of Jesus being our chief cornerstone. And he brings home some spiritual truths that it's not just about us as individuals, but it's about us as a corporate body of believers. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, and by the way, this is after Jesus, well, Paul Jesus, through Paul, laying down the fact that we are saved by grace, not by any of our works, but by grace, and that by the blood of Christ we can come near to our Father in heaven, that through Jesus we have peace with God, we are no longer at war with God, we've been reconciled, we have access to the Father that's in heaven. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Who felt like a stranger and a foreigner before they met Jesus? Just wandering around, hopeless. Like, what was going on? But look at this, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Like you look around this room, we are fellow citizens. We are saints, those set apart, those who have been made holy by him, members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Look at that layering. You've got Christ at the bottom. You've got the prophets. You've got the apostles. But it's Jesus. He is the one who is the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you're also being built as individuals, built separately, built in your own homes, built up through YouTube. It says built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We look at this short passage, and there are three things I want to bring out. Firstly, we are all one family. We are all one body. If you are born again in the Spirit, if you are a new creation in Christ Jesus in this room this morning, you're my brother, you're my sister. Because we are part of something that is, before you're a believer, you could never anticipate you're entering into this wide, broad family 
of believers. Why? Because we've been adopted in. It's by that spirit of adoption that each and every one of us can cry out to God and say, Abba, Father, that most intimate of relationships. Yes, we are many members, but together we make up one whole. And from this as well, secondly, we're also being built upon how many foundations? How helpful would it be if each and every one of us was built up on a separate foundation and then tried to come together on a Sunday morning and put those foundations together and those buildings together? It just wouldn't make sense. We're all built up on one foundation. And that foundation has to be the biblical Jesus. Otherwise, it's going to crumble. It's going to have fractures in the structure. It's not going to be healthy. Yes, we all have private relationships, but we come together as one body. Thirdly, we are being built together. And we've heard it so many times from this pulpit about the importance of the body of Christ being together. But I'm going to say it again. We need to come together in order to be built up as the body of Christ. We're not individuals isolated and fighting the world on our own. We are to come together as the body of Christ. And a healthy building project like this requires all of us to be healthy, to all of us to be built up upon Christ. If we come into this building on a Sunday morning and we're walking in in sin, we're walking in disobedience, we, we willingly are not coming under the authority of God's word or God's uh, leadership in the church. We bring that in on a Sunday morning. What we're doing is we're bringing our unhealthy life into the body of Christ and affecting the health and the stability of his body. We all have this personal, private responsibility to examine our own foundations, to examine our own spiritual walks, to make sure that on a Sunday morning, we can be a part of this process of being built up together. That we're not hindering the project, but we're adding to it. And we're all individuals, which means God's doing an individual work in us, but then that corporate work is all to the glory and praise of God. Your spiritual journey can and will affect the health and the stability of the church. And so we need to check ourselves. We need to examine ourselves as we bring that into the body of Christ. The fourth thing to say is this. I would say it's the final thing, but it's not. So the fourth thing is is this. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. I had four points, and then I added a few more at the end. So, But the fourth point is this. Don't forget who is in charge of the building project. With that passage, don't we, from Paul talking about planting, sowing, watering. Many will plant, many might sow, but it's God who brings the increase. It is God who adds to his church daily those who are to be saved. We read that in the book of Acts. And so we must not forget who is in charge of this building project. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up a spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What kind of stone does it say Jesus is? Living. 
What kind of stone does it say we are? Living. I was reading this passage again on Friday afternoon, just stuck on those words, living. One, Christ is alive. Hallelujah. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. But we are to be alive in our Christian faith. We are not to be dry. We are not to be those who sit back and do nothing. We are to be alive. And what does that mean? It means you have a pulse. It means you have a heartbeat. But it means you do normal things. And you do normal things as a Christian. You live the normal Christian life. You live the spirit-filled life where you are an ambassador, where you're a minister of reconciliation, where you are salt, where you are light to a broken, hurting world. We are living. The whole point is that we are alive. And then we're being built up into this spiritual house, this holy priesthood. Why? Not to the glory of ourselves. Not so that we can look at how many things we're doing and and say how great we are. We are doing this to offer sacrifices, praise, worship, and glory to God. Now, as you consider your part in this, and we all have a part to play as living stones being built up, it should be a humbling reminder to each and every one of us that God wants us involved. The God of the universe who spoke everything into being, who he made mankind in his own image. He knows each and every one of us, and he wants each and every one of us to be part of this project, which is so much bigger than ourselves. That's awesome. That should be humbling to us. So I want to bring us back into the ministry of Jesus, and I want us to consider what he said about his church. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus was very much growing in popularity. His fame or his infamy was certainly spreading. Rumors were rumbling. Again, the gossips were at work, and people were talking about who this man Jesus really was. And Jesus, he asked his disciples in verse 4, 13, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said to him, some say John, the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the priests. That's what people are saying. But then Jesus asks his disciples probably the most important question you could ask yourself, the most important question you could ask anyone outside of this church, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus Christ of Nazareth to you this morning? Who is he? Now, when you're out and about and you're talking to people about your faith, this is a great question to come back to. Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you know about him? What have you heard about him? Then hopefully, God willing, that will open up an avenue for you to share simply who Jesus is, just as Peter did on that day. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are God himself. And Jesus replied to Peter, said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. 
This revelation from God in heaven to Peter, who opened his mouth and shared to Jesus, and the disciples heard, was that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God. And then Jesus replies and gives us two powerful truths. Truth number one is this. On this rock, not, not Peter, by the way, not a man, on this rock, I will build my church. Truth one is this. On this rock, the truth that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the truth that the, build, the church is built upon because he is the cornerstone. No man can take that place. The second truth is this. I will build my church. Who does the church belong to? Jesus. It's not James's church. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. And he is the one who will build it up. Remember, he is the builder. He is the one putting the living stones in places. He is the one who is the cornerstone, but also the overseer of the project. As Jesus says, all of the strategies, all the schemes of hell will not be able to come against my church. If Jesus is in control, if Jesus is in charge, if he is the head and the cornerstone. You see, we are the living stones, but he is the builder. And not only is he the builder, but he is also the rock. In an ever-changing world full of uncertainty, we need the certainty of the rock that is Jesus Christ. And so, what will you this morning do with Jesus? What will you do with the person of Jesus, the empty tomb of Jesus? What will you, will you do with the teaching of Jesus? Will you build on the rock or will you build on the sand? So the question is, what do, we, what do we do? What do we do with all this information about this sturdy rock, this rock that we can stand upon, the rock we can depend upon? Turn me to Mark chapter 14. And we are nearly going to finish in Mark 14. Uh, for those of us who don't know the story, Mark chapter 14, we're near the end of the life of Jesus. He's about to go off into Gethsemane. Peter's about to deny him three times, and then he's off to be crucified. Mark chapter 3 to verse 9, we have this story, the anointing at Bethany. And it's about this woman who, who comes before Jesus. Verse 9 says, Assuredly, I say to you, Wherever this gospel, this good news is preached in this whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And we're doing that this morning, aren't we? We're declaring this as a memorial to her for what she did. But what did she do? What did she do? Look at me in verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. So what do we do? We are to come to Jesus and we are to be broken before him. And then we are to pour ourselves out upon the rock. We come to him and we're broken by the world. We're broken by the storms that are coming against us. But the truth is this, we come to him. And we take the most expensive and luxurious things in our lives, which if we're being honest, is probably ourselves. 
and we pour that out before God. We pour ourselves out upon the rock, this picture of total sacrifice, of complete surrender. And look at this, the world, they, they mocked him, mocked her, sorry, that the disciples closest to Jesus said, this is a waste of money, this is a waste. But why not waste yourselves upon Jesus? Pour yourselves out upon him. Take yourselves broken, beaten, battered up, which we all are and all have been. Come to him and lay it all out at the foot of the cross. You know, it comes to the teaching of Jesus. When it comes to this idea of building ourselves up on the rock, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. And if we really love Jesus, we will do what he says. We will build our lives upon him. And then when the storms come, we can stand strong. Finishing with this, Paul says, So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. How can we be strong and immovable? By being on the rock. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. We become broken and we pour ourselves out for him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so good to us. God, we thank you that the rock that we know as Lord and Savior is the same rock that Job stood upon, that David stood upon that Peter stood upon, the rock that is Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen each and every one of us. God, for those in this room who are building on sand, Lord, convict by your Holy Spirit. Lord, give them the strength to remove anything that is not built on that cornerstone, which is Christ. God, we need you, we love you, and we worship and praise you. Amen. Thank you.